Well, let me say, um, it's great to be here in some ways. In other ways, I wish I wasn't here, I wish I was in my bed, because we've, uh, we've had a week uh, together, our church assembly, state assembly down in Hobart this week, and there was a, some kind of bug going around, and I thought I'd escaped, but uh, not quite. He seems to have caught up with me. So I hope my voice lasts, and if I suddenly run out of the room, uh, that'll be why, okay? It won't be because I've disagreed with anything I've said or... <laughs> Um, we're going to look at this little book of Jews uh, in three talks uh, it's super concentrated stuff we won't actually cover every single verse and there may be questions that you have um, that you might want to ask about uh, during the day and that will be okay we're going to look at the first seven verses uh, in this first talk so if you have that open in front of you that will be good And you notice the very first word is Jude. Uh, someone has said that men call their sons Peter and Paul and their dogs Nero and Caesar. But the name Judas has been blotted out of our language except as a synonym for betrayal and treachery. That's right, isn't it? If I call you Judas, you would be insulted. We all understand what that means everyone knows what a Judas is but, but did you realize that there is a whole book in the Bible called Judas see the name Jude is the same name it's like Dave and David it's like Phil and Philip Jude, Judas it's the same name and there's a whole book here with the name of Judas and this little book which is tucked away right at the very end of the New Testament just before you get into the big book of Revelation is it's just a page long and it's all also about betrayal and treachery on a large scale just look at verses 3 and 4 these are the key verses in the letter dear friends says Jude although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. Someone has said just as the last uh, days began with the Acts of the Apostles so they will end with the Acts of the Apostates now I'm not sure about that myself but I totally agree with that statement but I think there's some truth in it certainly um, many people believe many Christians believe that there's going to be a massive falling away that there will be widespread apostasy before Jesus returns now I'm not sure whether I totally agree with that, but it certainly has been the case down through the centuries, just as there have been times of revival and restoration, so there have been times of decline and apostasy. And I think we're living in such days in Australia, in the church in Australia today. Globally the church is flourishing but locally it's languishing and this little book I think of Jude 
is, has really something very relevant to say to us. As placed as we are in the global south, because that's where we are geographically, and the sociologists and the missiologists tell us that God has moved south, and this is where the church is really flourishing, in the, in the global south, in Africa, in, uh, in Asia, uh, in China. This is where God is really at work, but we are in Australia. We are part of the Western world. And we are part, largely speaking, of churches that are in decline. Even when things seem to be going forward, and there are places where there are great encouragements, even where in Australia the, uh, the gospel seems to be making progress, it's often not keeping pace with the population. So I want to speak to you first of all about Jude's dilemma, and I think it's a dilemma that we can all identify with. See, there are two letters here. There's a letter that Jude, the letter that Jude wrote, which we're going to be looking at today. But there's the letter that he wanted to write. There are two letters, aren't there? He wanted to write, he tells us here, a positive letter about the salvation that we all share in common. That's where his heart was. That's what he wanted to write about. But instead, he writes this, well, it's a rather negative, quite frightening letter, really, isn't it? One commentator said, there is probably no other place in the New Testament where we are more inclined to sigh for what is lost and wonder what we have gained. Look, look what he says there in verses 3 and 4. He says, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. That's what I really wanted to do. But I felt I had to. I felt I had to write to urge you to contend. Now let's try and think about this dilemma. Um, I'm sure it's, we can all identify with this. You see, here is Jude wanting to commend the faith, but having to contend for the faith. Can't, can't you identify with that? Excited about the gospel, but frustrated with the church. Haven't you been there? You don't have to be a minister to say yes. <laughs> Gracious Bonner said once, I think it was Gracious Bonner said, um, he said, I looked for the church. And I found it in the world. I looked for the world. And I found it in the church. church is like a, it's like a boat and, and uh, the boat needs to be in the water but when the water gets in the boat you're in trouble, aren't you? and that's Jude's dilemma he wants to get the boat out into the water he's got this great message of salvation in which he wants to, to get out into the world through the church he wants to launch the boat into the water but the water is coming into the boat he says, I, I wish I could have written to you about our common salvation but instead I've got to urge you to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Now I want to say that, uh, that Jude's dilemma is, is, I've already said this, is our dilemma sort of circumstantially ministering the gospel as we do in, in Australia. If I understand it alright, there are huge gospel opportunities for us in Australia. I hope you're not one of these people who's, who's threatened by uh, the multiracial, multicultural aspect of our society. That's an opportunity. It's not a threat. Surely we believe in the sovereignty of God, don't we? We believe he sets people's 
times and places and the boundaries and it's all so that people might search after him and so he takes down the, uh, the Iron Curtain he, dis- he dismantled the Berlin Wall he does these things he moves people around he shakes things up he is active in the affairs of men and nations all so that people might seek after him you know the story about the two shoe salesmen who went to South Sea Island and, uh, and um, one wrote home saying I'm coming back on the next flight they're, they're on the next boat there are no, nobody here wears shoes there's, there's, no, there's no point in me being here and the other one wrote back and said send supplies nobody here wears shoes yes is that how we, how we view Australia today and, 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 and our great cities with with, with all these people coming from all over the world do we see it as a threat to our so-called Christian heritage whatever that's supposed to be or do we see it as an opportunity for the gospel I think we can if I can illustrate it from our local situation down in, in Hobart I think you can see something of this dilemma uh, in, in the university work down in Hobart you've got two great uh, works on, on the university campus there there's the the university I forget what they they keep changing their name it's the AFES group it's working with Australian students trying to evangelise Australian students and there's a, a really good leader there Maggie Lynch and, and they've got a, a really good team of workers and they work really really hard they're at it all the time they're being very creative they're trying to evangelise Australian students it's very very hard work and they're not seeing a great deal of fruit for their labours. There's another group on the, on, the, on the campus led by Luke Hansard, who, who leads the Focus Group, which is the Fellowship of Overseas uh, Christian University Students. Focus. And Luke cannot keep up with, with the opportunities that are presented to him to share the Gospel with, the mainly, with mainland Chinese students who are coming to him and, and, and saying, I want, to, I want to learn about Jesus. He can't get enough volunteers from the churches to help him. See, here we are, we're in the global south. There are these people from places like mainland China and and, and other places, from Muslim countries, who are coming to the university there in Hobart to study. And they want to know about Jesus. And poor old Luke can't get enough volunteers from the churches to help him bring the gospel to these students. You see? excited about the gospel but frustrated with the church that's the dilemma wanting to get this message of salvation out into the world but having to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints and it's not only true circumstantially it's true temperamentally as well there's a dilemma here isn't there uh, I, think you, you, I don't think it's reading too much into these words to, to say that Jude is a very positive, upbeat sort of person. I was very eager to write to you, he says, about our common salvation. And if you, if you bumped into him in the street, that's what he would want to talk about. That's the kind of guy he was. Very eager to talk about the things of Christ, about our common salvation. But he says, I felt I had to write to you about uh, and urge you to contend for the faith I felt I had to and and again I think can't we identify not only circumstantially where we're placed but temperamentally how we're made with with Jude 
there are things sometimes that we have to do uh, in ministry that we don't want to do there are conversations that we need to have in our family circle sometimes that we really don't look forward to isn't that right? there are hard words that have to be spoken sometimes and, and temperamentally we're not that sort of person we need to watch ourselves uh, I remember those words of Paul's I find these words um, very encouraging if you're in ministry I, I, this is almost a kind of uh, your philosophy of ministry text isn't it? Colossians this is Paul's philosophy of ministry at the end of chapter 1 of Colossians he says uh, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ to this end he says I labour struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me there's so much in that and you see what he says there for a start he's saying this um, and this is, well this is by the way really but it's worth pointing out he says that the ministry is a struggle how do you know that the Holy Spirit how do you know that the Holy Spirit is powerfully working through you you're struggling that's how you know People think, oh, if you've got the Holy Spirit, there'll be a breeze. When I have to prepare my sermons, I'll just stand up and open my mouth and the Holy Spirit will give me words. No, no, Paul says, this is how I know that the Holy Spirit is energetically and powerfully working through me. I'm struggling, I'm laboring, I'm taking my faith seriously. And, and his ministry, what is, if you were to ask him, well, what is that all about? What, why are you putting in the hard yards? Why are you working so hard at ministry, Paul? What's the end product? What's the goal of it all? He says, because I want to get as many people as possible over the finishing line. That's what he says. That's the way we sort of... Uh, um, uh, what's the word? I, uh, well, <laughs> that's, that's, we've taken Paul's words and we've put it into that sort of... So our goal is, when we think about our ministry down south, is this, to get as many people across the finishing line in the best shape possible. Isn't that what Paul is saying? He says, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That's what his ministry is about. That's why he's laboring and striving in ministry, so that he might present all sorts of people, everyone that he comes into contact with, perfect in Christ. How does he do that? How is he going to get as many people across the finishing line in the best shape possible? How is he going to do that? Notice what he says. By proclaiming and admonishing. Do you see that? There's a positive and a negative there, isn't it? There has to be the positive proclamation of the gospel, but there also has to be the admonishing, the warning. And if uh, we want to get our people over the line on the last day, if we're always proclaiming and never having that difficult conversation, not going to happen but on the other hand if we're always admonishing and never proclaiming well our people won't be motivated will they you see what I'm saying Jude if you would ask him temperamentally what he'd rather be doing he'd rather be proclaiming but he says I feel in the circumstances here I have to admonish some people like to admonish, don't they? Warren Worsby says that uh, he once received a, 
a letter from a person who had written to criticize his ministry and he wrote back saying, your letter, thank you for your letter, it must have been very difficult to write wearing boxing gloves. <laughs> Some Christians are like that, aren't they? They're always spoiling for a, fry, for a fight. Whenever you see them, there's always some new controversy they want to talk about. Uh, we have to watch ourselves temperamentally here. Some preachers are like that, aren't they? They preach with boxing gloves. They beat their people up. We need to know ourselves. We need to know ourselves temperamentally. We need to know how to contend without being contentious. We need to be, to put it another way, we need to know how to be father and mother. It sounds like I'm speaking, speaking to ministers, but it applies to us all. Remember how Paul described in his ministry to the Thessalonians, he said, I was a father and a mother to you. Temperamentally, psychologically you can't really be father and mother. Temperamentally you're either a father or a mother. But spiritually you've got to be father and mother. That's the point. And culturally too, we can identify, can't we, with uh, Jude's dilemma here. I was at a meeting last night, or Thursday night I think it was, at the university there in, in Hobart. It was the excellent marriage seminar that was held. Uh, it was well attended, it was a good meeting. Someone uh, gave his throwaway line there, which I thought was really good. He said, uh, uh, he said, we're not to be politically correct, we are to be prophetically direct. I don't know if that was original to him, but I think that's a great phrase, isn't it? Because there's so much culturally, uh, nobody wants to be a wowser. Culturally, uh, nobody wants to be a negative sort of person. Uh, the unforgivable sin in Australia is to be intolerant of anyone, isn't it? And nobody wants to be thought of as intolerant. It's politically incorrect. Jude is saying, this is the letter, Jude's, uh, the letter of Jude's countercultural. He's saying, there's a time to be prophetically direct, not politically correct. There's a time when you've got to be countercultural. There's a time when you've got to stand up, even though everybody's laughing at you and ridiculing you, and stand up for what you believe. I urge you, he says. I wish we lived in different days. I, lived, I wish that our society was different. But he says, I urge you to contend contend for the faith that was for once and for all delivered to the saints. So I, I, I'm sure we can begin to identify with this little letter of Jude and Jude's dilemma here. And, and the second thing I want you to, to, to move on from that is to, is to show you what's at stake. You see, you notice how he describes it there in verse 4. He calls it the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That's what's at stake. The faith. Not faith. I don't know about you, but I was really, really encouraged by uh, the Queen's Christmas message this year, weren't you? If you, if you, if you heard it. Uh, there was a real, it seemed to me, a real expression of faith there in that message. She's so different to her son. Charles has put it on record that if he becomes king, he will become not the defender of the faith, but he would like to think of himself and be known as a defender of faith. Which is nice and... Uh, vague, isn't it? And that, uh, we need, to, we need, to, we need to, 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 to face up to what Jude is saying here. Because there's an awful lot of vagueness in the Christian church. 
There's an awful lot of sentimentality when it comes. As long as somebody says they're a Christian, we believe them. And if someone claims to be a Christian leader, well, we say, well, he must be. And because someone says they believe, well, we say, wasn't that wonderful? That's lovely. No. Jude says there is something called the faith, which can be spelled out, which has been handed down. This is the true apostolic um, succession. It is a body of truth that has been handed down, a form of sound words, which has been handed down from generation to generation. Jude says, this is what, the, what I'm writing about. This is what I'm on about. We need to contend for this faith, once and for all delivered to the saints. Now let's look at uh, what that means here. What are these truths that are, that are necessary to salvation? What are these truths that we've got to contend for? We can agree to disagree on lots of things. I mean, in a room like this, we come from all sorts of different church backgrounds and denominational affiliations, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree on lots of things. But there are certain truths that are necessary to salvation. There are certain truths that we must go to the stake for, if necessary. What are those truths? Well, look what he talks about here. The sovereignty of Christ. You see that there? Verse 4. Certain men, fifth columnists, if you like, have, have secretly slipped in among you, these godless men, who change the grace of our God into a license of immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. See how Jude describes Jesus there? Our only Sovereign and Lord. Which is all the more interesting when you realise who Jude was. Who was Jude? Well, uh, he tells us that he was a that he's a servant, look at verse 1, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. There are a couple of Jews in the New Testament. Um, one Jew was an apostle. There was a, a Jude the apostle. But that's not this Jude, because you notice in verse 17, he, he distances himself from the apostles, doesn't he? Dear friends, he says, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. So he's not an apostle of our Lord Jesus, but he is a brother of James. So who is he? He's a brother of Jesus. But why doesn't he say so? I mean, surely the temptation to name God must be overwhelming. Don't you think? You know, I was talking to my brother, the Messiah, the other day. <laughs> Why doesn't he say that? Because we're saved by grace, aren't we? Not by pedigree. It's through faith, not bloodlines. Or church connections. And that's Jude's testament, isn't it? I am a poor sinner and nothing at all. Jesus Christ is my all in all. He may be my brother, but he's the Lord of glory. He's the Messiah. He is my only sovereign. I've got a brother, he's never called me that. But Jude calls his brother Jesus my only sovereign Lord. That's what the Gospel does, you see. It's in a person's life. It's a great leveller. It lifts the Saviour high and it brings the sinner low. It's a great leveller, isn't it? And Jude has come to understand who Jesus is. He's my only sovereign Lord, he says. And the word literally is despot. But we really need, I think, today, this is something that we need to 
contend for, it seems to me. So often nowadays, the man is lifted up. I'm talking in Christian circles now, in church circles. So often, these days, man is lifted up. And Christ is brought down until it becomes almost a meeting of equals. Isn't that right? So Jesus is my friend who's helped me sort out a few of my problems. No, he isn't. He's our only sovereign Lord. That's who he is. A.W. Tozer uh, says a lot about this, actually, in his writings. Listen to what he says. Jesus Christ has today almost no authority at all among the groups that call themselves by his name. The present position of Christ in the gospel churches may be likened to that of a king in a limited constitutional monarchy. The king is in such a country no more than a traditional rallying point, a pleasant symbol of unity and loyalty, much like a flag or a national anthem. He's lauded, hated and supported, but his real authority is small. Nominally, he is head over all, but in every crisis, someone else makes the decisions. Is that how it is in your church? In your denomination? Is that how it is in your life? In your ministry? In your preaching? Do you preach him as Lord? It's interesting, you see, that in the Acts of the Apostles, in the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is referred to as Lord 92 times. He's only referred to as Saviour twice. Now that doesn't mean to say, of course, that he's not Saviour, but the point is you cannot have him as your Saviour unless you take him as your Lord. It's not an insurance policy. You can't just say, oh, I'll have Jesus just in case there's such a thing as hell <laughs> so that my sins will be covered and then go on and live your life as you please. You can't do that. If you want him as your Saviour, if you want him to rescue you, then you have to bow the knee to him as your Lord. He is our only sovereign Lord. To, to have faith in him is to bow the knee to him and to hand your life over lock, stock and barrel to him so that he becomes the absolute despot who calls the tune. It's interesting, isn't it? These people, these fifth colonists who sort of crept into the church, they, this is what they deny. That Jesus is the only sovereign Lord. Often when people go out of their way to deny something, it gives them away, doesn't it? It's like when a when your three-year-old uh, daughter uh, denies all knowledge of the torn wallpaper in her bedroom. <laughs> you instantly know two things. You know that the wallpaper is torn and you know who's done it. Don't you? And when people go out of their way in their writings or in their preaching to deny that Jesus is our only sovereign Lord, that's saying something, isn't it? Sometimes they don't deny it outright. They just deny it by never talking about it. If you, want a false, if you want to spot a false teacher, it's not so much what they go on about, it's what they never talk about. That's what you need to look for. They never say anything about Jesus Christ being the only way of salvation. I was at, a, uh, at a, an ecumenical service in the state uh, a couple of years ago when uh, I was given a reading, this is the way they do these ecumenical services, they gave me a passage to read, it was John chapter 14 verses 1 to 6, and it finished, it was printed out, and it finished in verse 6a. You know, where it says, 
I am the way, the truth and the life. And I was supposed to read that passage and finish there. See, there's nothing of tension really, see, if you say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. But when you go on to the second half of the verse and say, and, and no one comes to the Father except through me, well, that's very different. That's not politically correct, you see. So they edited that out. That's, that's what Jude is talking about. He's talking about those who deny that Jesus Christ is not just a Lord, but our only sovereign Lord. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. This is the gospel, then, you see. It's not just once upon a time. It's once and for all time, this gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is that part of your gospel? Is that what you hear from your pulpits? That Jesus Christ is Lord. And, notice verse 4 again, that salvation is by grace. You see, what these people are doing, verse 4, they change the grace of God into a license for immorality. They legitimize sin. You remember, was it Catherine the Great who was supposed to have said this? I'm not sure. I've heard it attributed to different people. God will forgive. That's his job. So, uh, I can live as I like. God loves to forgive and I love to sin. So that makes for a good relationship. That's the kind of thing that Jude is talking about here. Cheap grace. Easy believism. Tertullian, the church father in the 4th century, uh, said, said, said this, he, uh, he put it very, very well, like this, he said, that just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so there are two thieves that continually steal the gospel from us. Legalism on the one hand, and license on the other. And Christians are constantly falling down to one side or the other. If the devil will push in both directions, whichever uh, suits him. What does it mean when we talk about salvation being by grace? Listen to, again to, to, to Tozer. He's, he's uh, very good on this. He says, the gift element in the gospel is held to be its exclusive content and the shift element is accordingly ignored. Theological assent is all that is required to make Christians. It's describing the state of things today. This assent is called faith and is thought to be the only difference between the saved and the lost. Faith is thus conceived as a kind of religious magic bringing to the Lord great delight in possessing mysterious power to open the kingdom of heaven. The gift element, he says, it's held to be its exclusive content and the shift element is accordingly ignored. You see, that's, that's so important, isn't it? The, the gospel is this, that yes, it is, it is the free gift of God. We can't save ourselves, we can't earn our salvation, we can't work for it. It is the free gift of a gracious God. It is all of grace. It is a gift through and through. But if you have received that gift, you will shift from your sin 
You see, this gift of salvation, Jesus didn't come to save us in our sin. He came to save us from our sin. And, and repentance and faith go together. It's like uh, the spokes of a wheel, they turn at the same time. It's like uh, an excursion put it like this. He said, um, repentance is the tear in the eye of faith. That's a lovely way of putting it, isn't it? See, faith isn't just some, yeah, I agree with that. It's not just some arid intellectualism. Yeah, I think I believe that. No, that's not faith. Faith is, is turning to Jesus, looking into his wonderful face. And when you look, at, look to him and, and you understand what he's done for you on the cross, there will be a tear in the eye of your faith. You'll receive the gift, but you will want to shift. You see. So these are the truths that are under attack. This is the gospel. It's not just once upon a time, it's once and for all. And this is one of the things that we need to fight for. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's basic Christianity. That's the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's once and for all. There's a once and for allness about it. Karl Barth was once asked what he thought was the single greatest obstacle to reconciliation with the Roman Catholic Church. Karl Barth was the great Protestant theologian of the 20th century. This is what he said. I think the greatest obstacle could be a very small word which the Roman Church tacks on to every one of our propositions. The very small word, and. We say, Jesus, the Catholics say, and Mary. We seek to obey our sole Lord Christ, the Catholics seek to obey Christ and his earthly vicar, that is to say the Pope. We believe the Christian is saved by the merits of Jesus Christ alone, but the Catholic adds, and by our own merits, that is to say our good works. We think that the only source of revelation is the scriptures, the Catholics add, and tradition. We say the knowledge of God comes from faith in his word, as expressed in scripture, the Catholics add, and from reason. Jude says, I wish we could sit down and just enjoy our common salvation, but I, I'm urging you, I'm exhorting you to contempt. Nobody wants to be contentious. But this is the faith. Not ours. He didn't dream it up. It was handed down to us. We have a stewardship here. And Jesus, I urge you to contend for this faith once and for all. Delivered to the saints. And then just lastly, there's a pattern to all this that, that I want you to see uh, in, in verses 5 to 7. Uh, I think what Jude particularly wants to show us here in, in, in this little letter is, is, is how how a church goes off the rails, if you like. How this happens. How apostasy comes. How 
churches cease to be churches. There's a, there's a, there's a pattern that's discernible, and he's going he's to spell that out a number of times in this little letter. But just look at verses 5 to 7, and I'll try and do it as quickly as I can. Uh, there are three things there, there's a pattern there. You notice what he says about these fifth colonists in there in verse 4. He says, their condemnation was written about long ago. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand that. This isn't double predestination. He's not saying, well, they were destined to be damned. That's not what he's saying. I don't even know if the Bible teaches that. I hope not. I don't think it does. I don't believe that. I, I believe that people are chosen to salvation, but I don't believe that anybody is chosen to be damned. I think people might be passed over if they don't believe in Jesus, but they're not... I don't... Anyway, well, <laughs> I'm going off the subject here. But you mustn't read those words when it says that they were... Uh, what does it say? Their, their condemnation was written about long ago. That these people... That they were chosen to be damned before the foundation of the world. That's who these people are. No, no. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. He's, he's, he's saying, look... I'm, he said, I'm going to show you again and again. From this, this, is not, this shouldn't surprise you that this happens. Because this happened over and over again. You know the stories in the Bible, it says. It's written about long ago in the Bible. These sort of people, they're always around. And so he's going to show us from the scriptures, a number of times in this little letter of Jude, the pattern that emerges. And here's the first round, if you like, verses 5, 6 and 7. He brings three examples together. Not in chronological order, because he's, he's making a point here. And he talks about the church in the wilderness there in verse 5. And uh, he talks about the fallen angels in verse 6. And then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, doesn't he? And then he puts those three examples together in that order. He talks about the church in the wilderness. That's what Stephen calls that bunch of people, doesn't he, in Acts chapter 7. At, uh, in, at his martyrdom, in that big speech that he made, he talks about... The, the Israelites in the wilderness as the church in the wilderness and, and look what he says there in verse 5 he says though you already know this I want to remind you he says that the, the Lord or in, in, in the margin of your Bible it might actually say Jesus and, and that's a, a good quite a, a legitimate translation that, that Jesus or the Lord who delivered his people out of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. Now what does that mean? He who delivered, later destroyed. The one who delivered, later destroyed. What are we talking about there? How do you destroy a church? Not from outside, by persecution, history proves that, doesn't it? The church is to be destroyed, it will be from within. And these people, the church in the wilderness, you can read about them in the book of Numbers, they're destroyed as church. A whole generation perished by unbelief. Now, we mustn't press the illustration too far. Jude isn't talking about individuals losing their salvations. Moses was part of that multitude in the wilderness. He didn't get into the promised land. That doesn't mean to say he's not in heaven. Of course he's in heaven. We know that. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. But the point is this, you see. When is a church no longer a church? And the answer is when it ceases to believe. 
you turn over a page to the letters to the seven churches that's the message of the letters to the seven churches isn't it over and over again in case after case after case Jesus threatens to remove the candlestick to snuff out the light of the gospel but in every case as he addresses those seven churches he threatens to destroy the church but he still has a word for the individuals in the church doesn't he if anyone hears my voice to him who overcomes so there's this warning to the church and this threat to remove the candlestick but at the same time he reaches out to individuals in that church now you drive around Tasmania as I've driven up today and you'll see more church buildings than there are churches you drive around any of our cities and there's loads of church buildings that are no longer they no longer house congregations and even where there are congregations, it doesn't guarantee that that's a church. Because it says church on the notice board, doesn't mean that it's a church that Jesus would go to. When does a church cease to be a church? When people start stop believing the gospel. And the gospel is no longer preached in that place. That Jesus is the only sovereign Lord, and that salvation is by grace, and that it's once and for all nothing can be added to it when people start preaching something other than that it's no longer a church and if you're going there get out <laughs> a dangerous place it's a synagogue of Satan in fact that's what uh, Jesus says in these letters to the seven churches you see those seven churches in what we call modern day Turkey only the ruins remain now don't they There were churches in every great city in China in 800 AD. Did you know that? The story in churches. Where are they now? Thank God for what God is doing in China now. But See, because a church claims to be a church doesn't mean to say that it is. Um, when the gospel is thrown out and other things come in and things are added to the gospel, apostasy begins and you think it could never happen to us it's the whole history of denominations it has happened again and again that's why we have denominations see those Methodist preachers in the 18th century John Wesley Charles Wesley, George Whitfield they, they were Anglican ministers they didn't want to set up a denomination in fact they never did set up a denomination it was after their day that the Methodists came into being but why? Because the Anglican Church at that time didn't want the gospel. So they shut Wesley out of his, the parish church. He had to preach on his father's gravestone in the churchyard. See, don't say it can never happen to us. It's happening all the time. And don't say it can never happen to me. I'm a church leader, you say. I'm a pastor. Well, look at verse 6. Jude turns from the rank and file people of God there in verse 6 to their leaders, doesn't he? Look what he says. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these <coughs> is kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, for judgment on the great day. Now, uh, there's some controversy as about what he's talking about, but he's talking about um, 
the, the sort of uh, the cosmic fall when uh, Lucifer fell from heaven. Uh, there's not a lot in the Bible about that. Remember what verse five, this is, is the controlling thing. Verse five, he says, "I want to tell you about the stories that you know, stories that are in your Bible, things that have happened and you've read about them." There is a story in the Bible about angels who left their proper place and came down amongst the people of God, amongst the sons of men. And remember in Genesis chapter 6 of that very strange episode there where we're told that the angels did not keep their proper place. Now, angel just means messenger. The word angel means messenger. And whether he's got wings and a halo or bad breath and a beard, it doesn't make any difference if he's a messenger. He's a messenger. And, and that's what an angel is, and that's what Jesus means when he lets, sends those letters to the seven churches. He, he writes to the angel of the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna and so on, to the messenger, the person who's bringing the message from God to that church. That's how he communicates, through the messenger. And uh, in, in some senses, angels are, are a good, a good um, role model, if you like, for those who perform that function in the church. You, you remember what we're told, we're told two things about the angels in the New Testament, aren't we? That they, they stand in the presence of God, and they serve those who are the heirs of salvation. There are those two things. They, they stand in the presence of God, and they minister to God's people. That's what angels are supposed to do. And in that sense, they're role models for, for Christian leaders, standing in the presence of God and serving the people of God. That's what ministry is all about. If you're going to love and serve God's people, then you have to live in God's presence. You have to be under His authority. You have to come from Him. But what happens? What happens when instead of serving God's people, these messengers are overcome with lust and they are controlled by lust and instead of loving they are lusting love says you, lust says me love gives and gives and gives, lust grabs and grabs and grabs, love is willing to sacrifice, lust just wants to indulge itself love serves, love, lust wants to be served Watch out, says Jude, when the angels, when the messengers leave their proper place and instead of serving God's people, begin to exploit God's people. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 6. Instead of serving them with love, they, they exploited them in lust. Watch out for that kind of leadership emerging in the church. Leaders, preachers, messengers, televangelists who, who don't know their place and won't keep to their place. Leaders who are not content to be under the authority of God themselves but take authority themselves and lord it over others. Exercising a kind of tyranny in other people's lives. Sometimes it's because literally out of, out of animal lust Sometimes it's lust for power. Sometimes it's lust for recognition. Sometimes it's just a big ego trip. 
Watch out for that, says Paul. Says Jude, if you see that happening, you say it couldn't happen in my church. It couldn't happen to me. It couldn't happen here. Think again, says Jude. And when that does happen, you see, when God's people lose the gospel, they're being fed other stuff, and they start believing other things, and it's the gospel plus something else, and we become we become people with causes rather than the cause, which is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. When people when God's people lose the gospel and and leaders in the church, instead of serving God's people, instead of coming from God's presence to serve God's people, are on an ego trip and they're exploiting God's people, what happens then? Well the judgment of God comes down on the society, doesn't it? That's why he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah next. In a similar way, he says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. The judgment of God comes on the society in which we live. Were there any of God's people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes. There was lots, not lots, but there was lots. The New Testament calls him righteous loss. But when you go back to, to Genesis, he doesn't look very righteous. He's been very much compromised by the culture. The salt has lost its savour. And when that happens, judgment comes down. Remember what Billy Graham said famously? He said, if uh, God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologise to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the same could be said about Australia today. And we're not just talking about homosexual practices. You, know, you remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, uh, the prophet there describes the sin of Sodom. And homosexual practice was just one of those things. This was the sin of your sister Sodom, says Ezekiel. She and her daughters were, listen, arrogant overfed See, we can, we, it's so easy to point the finger at the homosexual uh, perversions that, that, that are so in our face these days but the prophet Ezekiel is turning around and pointing at us so this is the problem this is, this is the sin they were arrogant overfed unconcerned they didn't help the poor and needy they were haughty and did detestable things before me therefore I did away with them as you have seen God gave them up God gave them over the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness and, and it's seen in the fact that God gives them over to these things let me finish because I've run out of time but uh, it, I, it, this is probably uh, more speculation than exposition but I wonder sometimes if Abraham had kept praying do you remember in Genesis how he prays in Genesis how he prays for, for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah those cities in the plain 
If there are 50 righteous men, he says, if there are 45, if there are 40, if there are 30, if there are 20, if there are 10 righteous men, why did he stop? Because there was one righteous man in Sodom, wasn't it? So we're told. It's just possible, and this is speculation, it's just possible that Sodom was destroyed because Abraham quit praying. I don't know that, for sure. I don't know about that. But I do know this, that, that I give up too easily on people. I stop praying too readily. I think to myself, what's the use? Things have gone so far. The state of the church, the state of the nation, it's so bad. I remember reading in... Um, a little banner of truth paperback years ago uh, it was entitled Amongst the Soviet Evangelicals so if you ever saw that it's, um, it was the story of a man who'd come uh, back to Moscow after the collapse of communism and he, he, he was revisiting one of the big Baptist churches in Moscow and uh, as he was looking around the, the, the pastor uh, he, he turned to the pastor and said now, who are all those and there were rows and rows of, of black clothed women you know, black outfits and black headscarves and there were rows and rows of them sitting in this church and, and he said to the pastor who are those women? Ah, said the pastor those are the women who prayed communism out of Russia those are the ones they didn't have Kalishnikov rifles they had their Bibles and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed communism out of Russia not all gloom and doom, you see. Our God is rich in mercy. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Jesus came not to destroy, but to save. It's not all gloom and doom. And so Jude calls on us to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints.